God loves you. And he has a wonderful plan for your life. God told me that he wanted me to take this job and marry this person. God is calling me to leave this church and go somewhere else. I'm sure all of us have either said these things or we've heard them said to us at one time or another. Anyone who makes those claims usually feel they're pretty convinced that they are right in their decision. I mean, if God tells us something, if God, I mean, God leads us to do something, or God calls us to go and do something, we better listen and obey, right? It's a phone call you don't want to miss. I mean, if God Almighty, our good and gracious God, the God who never lies, he's always faithful, has a wonderful plan for your life. Why on earth would we want to do anything else and miss out on it? Along these confident assertions of God's love and leading in our lives, we might sometimes hear people say something along the lines of, and don't worry, brother. Don't worry, sister. This has all been bathed in prayer. You know, every time I hear that, I think to myself, I didn't know my prayers were dirty. It needed to be cleaned. But I'll just kind of take it for what it's worth and keep it moving. Bathed in prayer. Then occasionally you'll find someone say, well, not only has it been bathed in prayer, I found someone else who agrees with me that this is from God. This is my divinely approved decision. And then once you have your prayer bathed, counsel confirming, unshakable peace in my heart experience, well, the conversation typically becomes moot. It's shot down. I mean, we've filled out the price on the check, and God has apparently put his signature on it. What is there to discuss? But a question we should all ask ourselves and others this morning is, are these common Christian sayings true? Are they reliable? Are these common cliches and confident assertions that you make and I make about God's directing in our lives well-grounded? Just because someone says, God told me, And God led me. How do we know that it was actually God doing the talking and God doing the leading and not someone else? Well, God does love his people. And God does have a wonderful plan for our lives. But if God showed you and I everything he had planned for our lives, all in one moment, boom, right in front of you, would you actually think those plans are wonderful the first time you heard them? Let's use a little sanctified imagination for a moment. Let's go back to 2019, if you can think back that far. I wonder if God had shown you in advance 
in the year 2019 what the year 2020 would be like if you'd still believe that God's plans are wonderful for your life. And friends, God certainly speaks to his people. In fact, he has directly spoken to human beings all throughout human history. And the evidence is sitting in your lap this morning. The Bible you hold in your hands is God's word to mankind. The scriptures are God's special revelation to an original audience and a point in history, but has been sovereignly passed down and preserved for us. Yes, the Bible is written by man, but inspired by the eternal Holy Spirit. Or as 2 Peter 1 Verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews is a really long, apologetic, kind of one gigantic sermon. It's a really fast sermon. It's pretty exhausting to read in one sitting. But here's how the writer of Hebrews begins this long defense about the preeminence of Jesus. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, not only has God spoken to men and women, he has also called men to fulfill certain tasks for him. So, for example, God certainly called men like Moses to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. And then there was Joshua who would replace Moses to bring the next generation of the Israelites into the promised land. As we heard Alan read earlier from Joshua 1, this was what Joshua was to do. And God certainly called men like Jonah to pack up his bags and go to Nineveh and preach repentance. And God the Father sent his own son, Jesus Christ, who would call the original 12 disciples The apostles, and among the kind of additional few that got tagged on towards the end, was a man by the name of the Apostle Paul. That's why we read virtually every letter he wrote in the New Testament. Paul identifies himself as one who was called by the will of God. He was called to be an apostle, an authoritative messenger for King Jesus who along with the other apostles and prophets, were the very foundation for the church, Ephesians 2.20. Paul heard the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had been resurrected from the dead, Acts 9. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, 1 Corinthians 9.1. And Paul had been given the right hand of fellowship by the other apostles, Galatians 2.9. Why do I say all that? Well, Paul's calling from God was legit. You heard the voice of the risen Lord Jesus, you saw the risen Lord Jesus, and the apostles who were chosen by Jesus affirm you're one of the apostles. 
Paul's calling was the real deal. He had more than enough confirmation to know what God had called him to do. You see, God loved Paul and had a wonderful plan for his life. God had saved Paul, changed Paul, and gave Paul a love for the grace of God and a love to share that grace with others. And by the grace of God, Paul was called to be a church-planting, gospel-preaching missionary to the Gentiles in order to see the mystery of God be unfolded to the ends of the earth. Or if you remember about a month ago where we opened up in the book of Titus, as we've been studying this letter over the last four weeks, notice again Titus 1, 1 to 3 of how Paul identified himself. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. But friends, how do we think about God calling us today? How do we think about God calling you and me today to go to certain places and to fulfill certain tasks? I mean, are we in the same camp with the callings that Moses, Joshua, Jonah, or the Apostle Paul received from God? I mean, are we in the same category? And if not, well, how do we discern then what God is asking of us? Should we view every nudge, every warm fuzzy, every inner peace we might feel as automatically coming from God? And for that matter, If we don't feel a nudge, a warm fuzzy, or an inner peace, does that mean God isn't leading us or isn't speaking to us? You see, when we think about discerning God's will in our lives, I live in this pool as a pastor. My life is constantly facing decisions every day, individually as a Christian and a father and a husband. But in pastoral ministry, 80% of my week is consumed with helping Christians discern God's will in their life. Now, I don't know God's perfect future plans for anyone's life. I don't even know what tomorrow holds for my own. So I can't pull out some kind of fortune cookie answer from Blake of what should you do three years from now? But that's really what pastoral ministry is all about, shepherding, leading, pastoring. It's helping people apply God's word to their life. That's really a summary of what an elder or a pastor is to do. But friends, in my years in being a Christian and in my years in shepherding Christians, I think there's four common approaches, Christians on a variety of a spectrum here. This is typically how many Christians make decisions in their life. I'm going to break it down really quickly into four approaches. Number one, there's the feeling-based approach. It's not going to be on the screen, but the feeling-based approach. 
Whatever feels right must be right. What's your gut feeling? It's kind of like your go-to question when making decisions. Then there's the circumstance-based approach. The circumstance-based approach. And we look for the proverbial open doors. Ask God to give us signs. As if we're going to cast our fleece before him, like Gideon in the book of Judges. In this sense, we tend to look for things going our way. As God's thumbs up to our decisions. Then there's the people-based approach. The people-based approach. It's we basically do whatever makes others happy or proud of us. Or we're so resentful of what other people think that we should do that we do the exact opposite of them. We do it just simply to spite them. But we don't really, in either situation, use our own noggin. We don't use wisdom and personal responsibility. We we basically dump it on everyone else. And then there's the logic-based approach. The logic-based approach. In this approach, we think only in terms of human logic. Sometimes it's pragmatism. If it works, the end justifies the means. Other times, it's a purely naturalistic way of viewing the world around us. Uh, The supernatural and God working in the details of our lives gets put in this kind of nice little human box where we're very comfortable with the way God works because God will never do anything that supersedes human logic. In that sense, all surprises and the extraordinary in your Christian life basically goes out the window. Friends, how are you currently making decisions in your life? What approach do you find yourself prone to lean on when God puts you in a crossroads of options before you? Beloved, the way we make decisions decisions and discern God's will in our lives is crucial, especially when we face transitions in life, transitions at work, transitions in families, transitions as we marry, transitions as kids leave the home, and transitions as we age. Brothers and sisters, the way we make decisions and discern God's will in our life also matters when God brings transitions into the life of your local church, which is where we're going to spend our time today as we finish the New Testament book of Titus. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. If you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 580. This morning... We find ourselves at the very end of Paul's personal letter to Titus, as Titus was instructed by Paul to fulfill the ministry he was given on the Mediterranean island of Crete. It was a ministry that Paul had delegated. This is his apostolic delegate, his representative, uh, to help these churches grow more healthy. Uh, Titus was a Gentile convert. He might have been saved on one of Paul's journeys, or he was discipled as a young believer in the early missionary days. Uh, Either way, Titus had been discipled, trained, and commissioned by Paul 
to go to the island of Crete and continue the gospel ministry that Paul had started years previously. Throughout our time together, we've learned what those basic marching orders have been since day one when Titus was left there. So to kind of refresh our minds, or if this is your first time with us at CCBC and you haven't been studying the book of Titus, we just catch you up to speed. He was to identify and establish biblical church leadership. He was to find elders, overseers, pastors, men who fit the qualifications for God's leadership role in his church. And we saw that in Titus 1, verses 5 to 9. He was then to take charge in warning the churches of false teachers and their followers who had caused tremendous problems in these churches. These wolves in sheep's clothing were upsetting whole families, Paul says. Therefore, Titus was appointed to this mission, and he was to rebuke them, He was to silence them, and he was to remove their ministry platform so that they would not cause harm anymore. In Titus chapter 2, we see Titus at like a spiritual chiropractor, where he popped back into place the disorderly and divisiveness that some of these unregenerate church members had caused. And so Paul told Titus, remember, as for you, teach what accords was sound doctrine. He was to teach and model by example what a Christian life looks like, what an orderly and fruitful discipling ministry should look like, where men and women, boys and girls, would see their relationships in the church in a familial light, like a family. We pour into one another, the mature pouring into the immature, the older and the younger so that the gospel reaches the next generation. Last week, we left off in Titus 3, verses 1 to 11, where Titus was to remind believers of truths they already knew. We can forget things, right? You probably don't even remember last week's sermon, chances are. I don't even remember half my sermon, so we're all in the same boat. But we all need reminders in the Christian life. And so Titus in Titus 3 was to remind them once again on how Christians are to submit to authority, remember the goodness and mercy of God in saving you, and build up the church through good works and protect the church from divisive people. This morning, we conclude our study by looking at transitions in ministry, trusting God when he moves his servants around to fulfill his good and perfect purposes. Please follow with me as I read Titus chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. If you're taking notes, I have two main points 
with a final five applications at the end. Two main points and five applications at the end. Point number one, gospel ministry is a team effort, not a one-man show. Gospel ministry is a team effort, not a one-man show. Number two, gospel ministry is not just about getting things done. It's also about loving those you are serving and loving those who serve with you. Let's look at that first one. Gospel ministry is a team effort, not a one-man show. Let's first acknowledge the obvious. I mean, this is kind of like Bible student 101. Get rid of your Greek, get rid of your Hebrew, get rid of commentary, just step back for a minute. Think of the easiest understanding of this. The Apostle Paul was not in Crete. He was writing to Titus. Paul was probably hundreds of miles away in Macedonia when he wrote this letter to Titus. In order for Titus, who received the letter, to fulfill a particular mission on the island of Crete. In other words, Paul wasn't trying to save the world by himself. Though he was gifted, talented, and greatly used of God, Paul didn't see himself as a Lone Ranger Christian. He didn't see himself as the Messiah's maverick. He wasn't off on his donkey discipleship campaign all by himself. In fact, from the book of Acts all the way to his last letter in 2 Timothy, friends, you see an NFL-sized roster of names, names of Christians, Christians like you and me. He sees names of men and women in those letters. You might say, who are they? Well, they're names of believers who either traveled with Paul, evangelized with Paul, ministered to his needs, provided for him, and prayed with him. Friends, Paul models for us what Jesus Christ himself modeled in his public ministry. He discipled others and delegated tasks that he equipped them to fulfill. Let me say that again. He discipled others and delegated tasks that he equipped them to fulfill. That means that you and I should not try to live our lives on an island to ourselves. Friends, that means no matter how gifted or wise or skillful you and I think we are, we should never, underscore, bold, circle, never try to do everything all the time all by ourselves. Brothers and sisters, if you're inclined to this sort of prideful attitude, you need to repent. Stop calling it a personality issue. It's a sin issue. It's sin. It's not of the Lord. Stop trying to be the most valuable player in your own little universe. Surround yourself with people that love you. Surround yourself with people who have strengths that you don't have, weaknesses that you don't have. Friends, when you follow Jesus, one of the first things that Jesus teaches us 
is that you can't live the Christian life alone. This is not a pastor's hobby horse. This is the New Testament. This is just basic Christianity 101. Listen, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus caused demons to tremble. Jesus told a storm to be still. Jesus can raise people from the dead. And yet, Jesus called 12 ragged, tagged men and trained them for a gospel ministry that would forever change the world. And in case you think these were superhero Christians, let me remind us this morning of who they are. These young men were backwards according to most worldly standards. I mean, the book of Acts literally says they were known as common and uneducated folk. In other words, they stayed on the front porch. They didn't even get an invitation into the banquet. They had kind of rocks for jocks was their best grade in school. Okay? These women were not type A Harvard grads with a seminary level PhD. They were fishermen, tax collectors. And for the most part, they were self-reliant, as Alan led us in prayer of confession, and self-righteous men. And friends, one of the things you'll pick up about the disciples, they were so slow to understand the things that Jesus taught them. I mean, some of us in here think, well, if I was right, Jesus, I mean, I think I would get it the first time. Baloney! These 12 men traveled around with Jesus right there under him, listening to every word. And you know what Jesus said to them throughout his ministry? I've already taught you this. How many times have I told you the same thing? You are slow of heart to believe. You're foolish. You can't even, you can't even handle anything new. You haven't even learned the first thing the first time. Parents, can I get an amen to that, that frustration? When I look in the mirror, I think, my, why has the Lord not given up on me? How many times has the Lord repeated the same thing to me? Over and over and over again. Friends, these men, they took Jesus' SAT exam a dozen times before they grasped the material. And yet, by God's amazing grace and his immeasurable power working through these very weak and inconsistent men, Jesus used these men and the believers they would influence to turn the world upside down for King Jesus. So here in the book of Titus, we see the same team mindset, Kate, literally bait at the end of this letter. And not only is Titus the primary recipient of this letter, but we're now introduced to four other men whose names are mentioned at the very end in this time of ministry transition. Look down with me at verse 12. Artemis and Tychicus are mentioned in. I mean, Artemis, has anyone ever named a pet hamster or a dog Artemis? I mean, Artemis doesn't get a whole lot of fanfare. Tychicus, I mean, it sounds like something you need to go to the doctor for, you know? When I get to heaven, he may challenge me on that one. But. Then he mentions verse seven or 13, Zenos the lawyer and Apollos. You see, two of these four were more widely known. At least we can tell that from the repetition of their names in the New Testament. Uh, those men were Tychicus and Apollos. 
As you may recall, Tychicus was an Asian brother who traveled with Paul in his third missionary journey. You can read Acts 20, verse 4, to learn more about that. Tychicus is highly esteemed and highly spoken of by Paul in the New Testament books of Colossians and Ephesians. It's most likely that Tychicus is the one who took the letters of Colossians and Ephesians to the saints. In fact, listen to Colossians 4, verse 7, of how he describes Tychicus. He is a faithful brother and faithful minister. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. You see, Tychicus was used of God to bear some of the New Testament letters in his own hands to these dear saints. And Paul thought he was so reliable, so useful, Towards the end of Paul's life, his last letter, he sends Tychicus to Ephesus to do some more work there, 2 Timothy 4.12. And then there's the popular preacher, Apollos. Now, Apollos is a pretty cool name to name your cat, dog, or, you know, hamster. Might be a big old hamster. Apollos is spoken about in the book of Acts, chapters 18 and 19. He's littered throughout 1 Corinthians. Uh, The scriptures describe this man as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. I mean, he was the preacher people came to listen to. Man, he could just wax eloquently, mighty in the scriptures, powerfully expositing the text. And yet, just like all of us, even gifted and godly men need a little help. Remember Priscilla and Aquila, that godly Christian couple? They came alongside Apollos and said, hey, brother, God's using you, but you don't know the gospel as fully as you need to. Let us explain to you the way of God more accurately. And as Apollos had that teachable heart, he continued to be a mightily used vessel of the Lord. But the other two men don't get a whole lot of fanfare. Their Facebook page has like five friends. Just kidding, I'm not really sure. But they're at least lesser known to us than any other the other guys, they're not mentioned again in the Bible. You got Artemis. We know nothing about the dude. Nothing. It's just Artemis. Art. Good old Art. He made the Bible. More than I can say. But there's Artemis. We don't have a whole lot about Artemis, but we do know this. Paul trusted him. Paul thought something well enough of him to say, this guy, he's worth traveling with me to do good gospel work. I need him with me. And then there's Zenos the lawyer. If you've ever wondered if a lawyer can also be a Christian, there you go. Zenos is a lawyer in Roman law or he's an expert in Jewish law. Either way, he was obviously skilled in his profession. So much that just like we hear about Luke, what is he called in the scriptures? Luke the what? The physician. Well, Zenos is called Zenos the lawyer. Apparently, he was very good at what he could do. Artemis and Zenos, they were two fairly unknown men by the testimony of scriptures. But all four of them together were known by Paul. And listen, all four of them were perfectly known by our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the most important thing in life that matters. To the wind with how many people know you. To the wind if your pastor or elders ever recognize you. King Jesus sees you. He's the one you're seeking to please. Don't get envious if you don't get spotlight. Don't get envious if you don't get credit. Don't get envious if you don't get a pat on the back. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? They do their righteous deeds before men so that they can be praised. And Jesus says they had their reward and went straight to hell. 
Friends, some of the greatest blessings that you and I could ever have is we don't get attention from men and we only keep our eyes on Jesus. Praise be to God that his opinion matters a whole lot more than how many people know our name. You see, God uses all sorts of people to accomplish his perfect plans in the world. The well-known and the unknown. The extroverts, the introverts, the type A go-getters in the world, and the quiet and timid faithful who serve behind the scenes. Friends, God shows no partiality. And he will get glory using men and women that aren't always leading out in front in the spotlight. Friends, be encouraged by that. Be encouraged that God will use you in the way he built you for a glorious and wonderful purpose. If God wanted you to be someone else, he would have cloned that person. But he made you on purpose for a wonderful purpose purpose. Friends, that means we shouldn't envy how the Lord has made others. We should rest in the way that God has made us. Keep focused on Jesus, and God will determine how he uses us and how long he uses us for his glory. These four men are mentioned at the end of the letter, along with Titus, as co-laborers with the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Friends, that means that Paul Imitating his Lord Jesus was not a one-man show. He was a team player when it came to gospel ministry. Friends, do you think of yourself as a one-man show? Do you find yourself reluctant to ask others to help you? Do you have Christians in your life that you're actively depending on to help you navigate through life's challenges? To help you make wise decisions? To help guide you in your life? How much time have you spent training and delegating to others tasks that could actually free you up and mobilize others to use their gifts. You see, if we tend to do ministry and life all by ourselves, we all need to confess that prideful tendency to the Lord. And if you and I can be passive, we can tend to be the opposite and depend too much on others to do things for us, we need to confess that selfish laziness to the Lord. There's just two sides of the same coin. You think too highly of yourself on the former, and then you don't take responsibility for the latter. And both of them are sin. The Bible calls us to confess that and repent. Friends, we should confess these things because gospel ministry is a team effort, not a one-man show. Point number two, gospel ministry is not just about getting things done. It's, all about, it's also about loving those you are serving and loving those who serve with you. Brothers and sisters, Paul did not view his ministry like a Fortune 500 company. You know, the bottom line is all that matters. Cutthroat performance reviews, unrealistic demands on people, and in church life, volunteers like that. 
No, Paul viewed the ministry more like a family group project with every family member doing their part, cleaning, cooking, cutting grass. Others are passing out water to those who are hot and tired and thirsty. I like working with a family. Ministry is hard work. Ministry is messy work. But it's a worthwhile work because it's work that matters to God. It's a worthwhile work that needs to be carried out, not as a one-man show or a one-woman show, but as a loving family, God's family, working with one another towards a common goal. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to step on a little bit of toes by asking this question. Friends, do you work well with others in this local church? Don't give me some broad stuff you did 10 years ago. I'm talking about right now. Real-time talk from pastor to member. Do you work well with others in this local church? Would others say you work well with others in this local church? Let that question sink in. If you don't work well with others in this local church, why not? Why? For a family, we're committed to the same Lord. We serve the same King. Our lives are built on the same Bible. I trust we possess the same spirit. You see, learning how to serve with others, as Paul certainly embodied, and learning how to follow those who are leading you is God's will for my life. It's God's will for your life as members of a local church. Friends, if you've ever been skeptical or you know someone is about joining a local church, and it's because, well, people are messy and there's problems and this and that. You should have heard about my last church. I said, then where on earth are you going to find a church that has no problems? Where on earth are you going to go where you have to not learn how to serve people? Until we get to heaven, church is messy because sinners are messy. So repent. And anyone who gives you that nonsense backtalk that they're going to find some church where they're not going to have that mess. Friends, this is messy work. It is hard work, but it's worthwhile work. And it's the local church where we learn how to serve, how we learn how to work together. A good verse I think all of us should meditate on is Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, as your pastor, I don't want you to misunderstand me here, but I still want to press this topic on our minds. Ministry does require meeting goals and sometimes meeting deadlines. There are expectations for those who are leaders. There are expectations of members of this congregation. The church covenant is the screaming expectation every time you walk in those doors. So, for example, my sermon is due every Sunday morning. You know, Spurgeon can pull it off. Well, the Lord has not pressed upon me what I'm going to preach on, and he can walk off the platform. I don't have a 6,000-person church, okay? 
God hasn't used me anywhere close to that, so I don't think there will ever be a morning where I'm just going to wake up and go, well, the Lord hasn't told me anything. No, I think you would fire me. (laughs) My sermon's due every Sunday. The music team needs to be prepared by Sunday morning. Child care workers need to be prepared by Sunday morning and Wednesday nights. We need to vote as a church on a church budget if we're going to steward the finances God gives us at some point. But friends, in all of our deadlines, in all of our expectations that we have, never, ever forget. Ministry is about serving and loving people. This is not a factory here. We're not trying to just pump out disciples like artificial bolts or something. Ministry is messy because it's about serving and loving people. It's not merely about deadlines. It's about life-on-life discipleship. It's not even just about numbers. But the names of those people represented in those numbers. Listen, you don't sit around your dinner table with your family and treat it like a business conference call or an intense board meeting. You know, spend 20 minutes telling everyone to sit up in their chair because their posture is all messed up. Give them a list of five correct ways how to hold a fork. And then don't talk to anyone or ask how their day's going. Friends, you know from your own experience the most enjoyable part of dinner time with your family is seeing one another's faces. It's talking about your life and what matters to you. It's enjoying a meal together. And in the same way, we should view all our ministries in this church like a family that enjoys pulling up the chair to the dinner table and hanging out. We should care about ministry goals. We should care about ministry deadlines. And we all certainly should strive for excellence in all our ministries. We are called to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our minds, and with all our strength. Sloppy church services and sloppy ministries don't bring God honor. But if we're going to have God's heart for his church, we're going to care about the people sitting right in front of us and serving alongside us. We're going to care about their heart. We're going to care about their family. We're going to care about their finances. We're going to care about their joys. We're going to care about their sorrows. We're going to care about their sin. We're going to care about their fears. We're going to care about their goals. We're going to care about their health. And friends, we are going to care about their faith in Jesus. Every once in a while, I get to get on a plane. I don't travel nearly as much as I used to. There's a part in the arrival of getting on a plane where I feel like I walk the walk of shame. I'm stressed and I'm tired. I get in that little plane. How does anyone ever fit in it? And you're walking through, and the lady's asking, you know, how's your day, sir? Like, it's okay. I cannot wait just to take a nap. And then I turn, and then I have to dreadfully walk past all the first-class passengers. (sighs) hands behind the head, taking their shoes off, spreading out. 
I'm like, ugh, envy. Alan, pray for me. And then I go back to, well, the economy. And I'm like, okay, okay. Oh, man, I'm a middle seat. Oh. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe it's going to be a lighter flight. And the first dude shows up, he's 6'6". Six, six. And I'm like, well, maybe the other person will be really little. Oh, it's his buddy on the basketball team. He's 6'6". Six, six. So here I am in the middle. And I'm sitting there going, man, I want to be first class. I want to push the button. Friends, when you join a local church, you're not signing up to be treated like you're in first class. Get back to the back of the plane. That's where servants learn how to get low. But in loving one another, we treat one another as if they are in first class. See, friends, that's gospel ministry. You don't go up till you go low. There is no honor until you have humbled yourself. There is no glory without a cross. There are no rewards until self dies. Friends, that is what CCBC should be about. We are not first-class passengers demanding to be served. How dare you not say hello to me? How dare you not ask me to serve in this way? Oh, friends, that kind of attitude is disgusting. God hates it, spits it out of his mouth, metaphorically speaking. The kind of church God wants to teach us is a church that gets low, that goes to the back of the plane, and then we walk up to the first-class passengers and love each other as if they are in first class. Friends, we care about one another's godliness more than their giftedness. As your pastor, I care a whole lot more about how your marriage is doing than how your ministry here is doing. I care a whole lot more about what you're studying in the Gospel of Mark or in Titus than, well, how much you do at the church on Sundays. Friends, that's why we have a probationary period where you just sit and receive for months before you serve on a service team. Oh, friends, maybe repent of our first-class passenger mentality and love others as if they are in first class. Friends, I hope you desire the same for me. I hope you care about me and my family and my faith and my heart a whole lot more than my preaching ministry. Because one day my preaching ministry will be over, but I'll still be around. I pray that you would continue to do so as you have. Friends, we should see our ministries in the local church as an opportunity to love one another. If we're going to, quote, bathe any ministry in prayer, it better be accompanied by Christ-like love. Why? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love. I am nothing. And if I give all I have away and I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Brothers and sisters, ministry at CCBC is not just about getting things done, but about loving those we are serving and loving those who are serving with us.
That's how we should think about our ministry because that's exactly how Paul modeled his own. Look at Titus 3, verses 14 and 15. Titus 3, verse 14 and 15. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Uh, To send greetings. Sometimes these verses are kind of throwaway text. People just kind of read on and go, blah, blah, blah. Okay, next book of the Bible. But no, send greetings, it means more than that. You know how special you feel when you get a handwritten letter from someone you love? Charlie writes me letters. They're kind of funny. He cuts out little cartoons and sends them to me and encourages me. I like opening those letters, Charlie. Keep them coming, brother. We all love those letters. We love whether it's brief or it's long. We like it because we can, it's almost like we're trying to make out their voice as we're reading it. When he says, send greetings, it's just another way of saying, tell him I said, what's up? Tell him to holler at a boy. Tell him I'm thinking about him. I miss them. Tell them I hope they're doing well. You see, while Paul wrote this letter to Titus, this letter was not just for Titus to put away in his little memory bank somewhere in his little journal that no one would ever see until after he dies. No, this letter was to be read to the whole congregation. Titus was to communicate this letter from Paul to Titus to them. Paul wanted all the Christians on the island of Crete to know that he loved them too. These instructions that he gave Titus then, they're not Paul's hobby horse. They're not some arbitrary do's and don'ts on a menu that he gave to Titus. He's not cracking the whip on these churches trying to get his own way. No, he was was embodying Christ's love for us. Like Jesus did for his disciples. He taught them. Did you know that teaching sound doctrine is an expression of God's love to you? Any faithful sermon that's ever opened up in this pulpit from any minister that's faithful and sound and gospel-centered is an expression of God's love to you. He corrected them. He challenged them. He spent time with them. Why did Jesus do it? Because he loved them. Don't you remember John's gospel? On the cusp of Jesus' betrayal? What John says about Jesus' love for his disciples? John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or remember John 15? Where Jesus calls himself the vine and we are the branches that we need to draw and nurture our souls from his life and his love. John 15, starting in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is known than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. 
These things I command you so that you will love one another. Friends, Paul's letter to Titus was a wartime letter. This is tough stuff. This is a hard mission. But it's also a wartime letter filled with love and brotherly affection. Now, don't get me wrong, ladies. This is not a flowery letter. I don't think Paul took out the parchments and drew smiley faces and sunshines next to this. Okay, that's totally fine to do that. I just don't think that's exactly what Paul was doing. But from the first verse to the last, as he talked about church leadership, church membership, church discipline, discipling, evangelism, and work, everything he wrote in this compact letter was all grounded in the grace of God through Jesus Christ to sinners. You see, Paul loved them because Jesus first loved Paul. And those who were on Crete, who were truly Christ's sheep, they loved Paul back. Did you notice how he says, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Uh, friends, I know this might sound pretty simple. It might sound ridiculously simple. Paul loved them and the Cretan Christians loved him back. That might not come all that profound to you. But that simple truth right there is often taken for granted and forgotten in most churches today. You see, not all people who profess to be a Christian are a Christian. Let me say that again. Not all people who professed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, they're following Jesus, they're going to heaven. Not all who profess that are actually sheep. Do you remember Titus 1 verse 16? There are many who profess to know God. That's what the text says but they deny him by their works. Or you could say the lack of fruit you see in their life. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work, Paul said. But one of the ways you'll know a true Christian from a counterfeit faith is whether or not they genuinely love Christians. Friends, that's... That is one of the birthmarks. That's one of the characteristics you will notice about every true Christian around the world. Jack, when you're in school throughout the week, you want to know who's a follower of Jesus? Look for their love for follower of Jesus. Don't listen to how many Bible verses they can quote to you. Or their daddy and their granddaddy and granddaddy was a fourth generation Baptist. <laughs> Whatever. Do they love other Christians? That's what matters. Friends, love is the proof in the pudding. By this, all people in the world will know you're my disciples if you have what? Love for one another, John 13, 35. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you're wondering, hey, I think I might want to be one. I'm getting interested in following Jesus. Well, I've got good news for you. God does love us, and he has a wonderful plan for our lives. But his love for us is very different than the love other people have for us. God loved us so much that he saw how wicked and evil and undeservingly sinful we are, and yet he chose to still show us grace and mercy even though we did not deserve it. In other words, God 
has given us something we don't deserve. He's given us a gift that lasts for eternity. And God has spared us from giving us what we do deserve, God's wrath and eternal damnation. In God's amazing love then, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of obedience and love. And he died on a cross, being punished for the sins he did not commit, but for the sins that all of us have committed who turn from our sins and trust in him. Then God raised him from the, de- from the dead and calls all of us now to experience this abundant life, the whole life of following Jesus. And my friends, the more you follow Jesus, the more you see his good and wonderful plans for your life unfolded. But what you will find, that's why you need to join a church and be discipled by mature believers, is that the longer you follow Jesus, you will realize very quickly his plans for your life are often very different than your plans for your life. A part of God's plan for your life, you don't even need to bathe this one in prayer. I can tell you it's, thus saith the Lord. (laughs) This is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. No fortune cookies, no staying up in prayer, no kind of Houdini nothing. It's in the Bible. You want to hear God speak? Open the Bible. Woo, God speaks. Woo, God speaks. Shut it, God's not speaking. Woo, God speaks. Friends, do you get it? You don't need the willy-nilly, the fuzzy-nuzzies. You don't need all that kind of stuff. Get in the book. Talk to this God, and he speaks. He sanctifies us. He kills our pride and sin. He demolishes our best of plans, throws them in the trash, and he writes with perfect signature his plan for your life. Friends, if God showed you everything he was going to do in your life, you would run away in unbelief and fear. Don't ask God to show you the future before it gets here. It would terrify you. Because God's doing something in us to get us ready for what is down the road. Friends, when you read about the reformers, do you think they woke up when they became a Christian in England at 18 years old that they knew they would go burn on a stake in front of their spouse singing hymns and songs as their kids watched them burn for not denying King Jesus? Friends, God does not show us the future in advance because we can't handle it but he gets you and I ready, teaching us, dying to self, serving with others that are difficult to love as he makes us more like Jesus. You see, the good news is not we have a wonderful plan for our life. The good news is God loves us so much, he doesn't give you the wonderful plans you think you have for your life. And he gives them an entirely new script. You're now in Christ. You're forgiven, you're justified, you're loved, you're protected, you're cared for, you're provided for a perfectly heavenly father. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. We have a great high priest who is sympathetic and hears our cries and he intercedes for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit to enable us to live the Christian life for his glory. Guys, that is good news, isn't it? The good news that is extended to you today. 
Turn from your sins and trust in this good God who has wonderful plans to show you what it means to be like King Jesus. CCBC, that means we should take our eyes off ourselves and be reminded that God's eye never takes his eye off us. No matter what transition God brings into our lives, he's in 100% total control. God never takes his eyes off the road or his hands off the wheel, ever. He never sleeps, he never slumbers, he never gets anxious, he never gets afraid. He knows the past, the present, and the future all at once. Wow, that is a God you can trust. Isn't he? Amen. Friends, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe a young child going into preschool, kindergarten, student that was homeschooled their whole life, going to private or public school for the first time. Maybe a young married couple learning how to live together for the first time, working through things like putting the caps back on the toothpaste without causing a fight in the morning, or thinking how to spend money out of a joint bank account. A couple in their 40s, 50s, or 60s learning how to be empty nesters for the first time. The first day on your new job, the first month in your new home in the new state you moved to, the first year planning a church, the first time you've ever experienced in your church. Maybe serving in a role that you never thought you would. Maybe God's humbled you this year. It's the first time you've ever been a member of a church and you did not have a title of a committee or a deacon board next to your name. And God's teaching you maybe for the first time what it means to be a faithful member of a local church with no other titles. Others of you are overwhelmed because you've been asked to step up and to serve in capacities you never dreamed of. Tom Chain, Alan Williams, Jeff Pruitt are brothers being considered as elders in this congregation. Jansen Lester, just a year ago, actually under a year ago, working at Discount Tire, pastoring a local church across town. Probably didn't dream he'd be a pastoral assistant today. I hope I'm meeting some of your expectations. Anyway, if not, God's got a wonderful plan for your life. Same with you, Jackson. You can count on the Lord when I vomit. But friends, whatever new challenges we're facing, there's no reason to be afraid of them. He brought the transition. He brought the challenge. He knows your opposition. He knows when you're scared. Be strong and what? Courageous, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Friends, maybe some of you are considering joining this local church. That's a decision you're thinking, God, what do you want me to do? Others of you have been contemplating, hey, Lord, do you want me to leave CCBC and go somewhere else? Friends, whatever transition God brings into our life, I want to ask you the question, how are you trusting God through that transition? Which approach to decision-making do you tend to lean on? Is it the feeling-based approach? Is it the circumstance-based approach? Is it the people-based approach? Is it the logic-based approach? Friends, in this final kind of landing the plane, I just want to offer five words of encouragement that I think we can glean as principles from the end of Titus and how to help us make wise decisions and trust God in times of transition. Number one, listen to wise counsel and godly leadership. Don't make big life decisions in isolation. Look at verse 12. The first word is very important. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. 
You see, the topic of God's guidance and leading in our lives can be so confusing for most of us as Christians. Christians think that just because we read about visions and dreams in the Bible, or casting out fleeces, or seeing a burning bush, that that means that God is speaking to us today normally and regularly in the same way. Like we're looking for a a letter to fly out of heaven into our mailbox or something. And friends, God certainly has spoken to us in times past in many ways, the writer of Hebrews says. But God also leads us and speaks to us in many other ways. He leads us through the counsel of godly people. He leads us through his providence, his circumstances, opportunities, open doors, persecution and poverty can either push you away or God may bring you into it. But notice at the beginning of verse 12 of how Titus was to wait. Did you notice that? He was to wait for a specific timing in specific directions before he was finished at Crete. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 5? This is why I left you in Crete. In other words, it's kind of like the dad that dropped off his kid at college and said, son, I'll see you at Christmas. I'll be looking at your report card. I mean, Paul just said, I got to leave you here. You got work to do. And you're not to leave until I give you your next move. Look at the notice, the timing. He says, when Artemis or Tychicus arrives to you. In other words, he told Titus, stay exactly where you are until one of these men arrive. Don't be impatient. Wait. Notice the specific directions. Once one of these men arrived, Titus was to come to Nicopolis and find Paul there. And Nicopolis was on the Greek side of the Adriatic coast, about 200 miles east of Italy. Uh, It was a port city on the coast, which would have made it more enjoyable and bearable to live in the winter season. If you're a snowbird in here, or you're thinking, yeah, I've got a winter home. Well, Paul sort of had a winter home. He said, maybe it's winter's coming. I I got a place to stay by the ocean that's pretty nice. Anyway, I'm not really sure, but he did just say, winter's coming. We got to find somewhere nice to stay. Uh, Friends, God may lead us at times in situations where we don't know what the future holds. We walk into the unknown, but ordinarily he does help us by releasing us from certain responsibilities and he makes it known to us what he wants to do, what he wants us to do next and where he wants to go next. And everybody talks about walking by faith is like you're like doing like this, like you're in this dark house and you're trying to find the light switch. That's a bad way to view discerning God's will. It wastes a lot of time and you, you get hurt. That's just Not good. But friends, for Titus, he would discern the next steps of God's will for his life by waiting on wisdom and direction from an authority figure over him. Who was Titus' authority figure? Paul. Members of CCBC, surround yourself with a multitude of counselors when you're making big life decisions. Don't do that on an island by yourself. Whether that's dating, marriage, staying at a church, leaving this church, moving to a new state, taking a new job, whether or not you need to live closer to family. Those are big life decisions. Open it up to the counsel of others who love you and are wise. Friends, seek transparency 
with those who are trying to love you. Don't hide from them and make decisions in secret. These people, these men and women are God's gift to us to help you walk this life. Number two, be ready and available to serve God at all times. Give God your best, not your leftovers. Look at verse 12 and 13. Did you notice twice he repeats basically the same thing? Do your best to come to me. Verse 13, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer. Friends, you want to see God work in your life? Hate sin, love God, and keep your eyes open at all times to serve the Lord and serve his church. Do your best. Lean in to serve others. Don't check out and be passive. Number three, hold your current ministry role loosely. We are all replaceable. Again, notice there's four different names mentioned, as well as Titus, that God was going to use on the island of Crete for different reasons. As we already discovered, two were not widely known, two were. Either way, it was time for Titus to leave. Do you think that was a punch in the gut for those Christians? Man, we owe the establishment and the health and the orderliness of these churches to Titus's ministry. But Paul said, Titus, it's time to go. I'm going to replace you. I'm going to send Artemis, most likely, because Tychicus was going to Ephesus, and he's going to come by, and he's going to pick up where you left off. Friends, sometimes God is in the business of replacing big-name Christians with no-name Christians all the time. You know why? Because God gets all the glory. Titus is widely known in the Bible. Artemis doesn't even get a pet in the Bible. It's just nothing. But Artemis was the guy. Friends, I don't know what God's will is for your life here at CCBC. I would encourage some of you to think about being at CCBC for a long time. Intentionally put down roots. Stop thinking about the next thing. Think about the next 20 years. Some of us need to think a little more strategic over a short term to think, I need to get equipped. I need to get discipled. I want to be informed. I want to be empowered. And I want to go help plant a new church. I want to go be a part of a struggling church that I can get behind that pastor. Friends, I don't know what God may stir up in your heart while you're here, but I want to get you ready. Get Put all the books in your book bag to get you ready if God has good plans for you on the mission field across seas or maybe just across the street or across town in the River Valley. We need to be thinking long-term and we need to think about how to be equipped. Number four, multiply yourself Train others to do what you can do. Look at verses 13 and 14 again. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Friends, Titus left them that kind of example. In Titus 2, 7 and 8, he was to teach and model for the believers a life of good works. He was to see elders raised up that would model the same. Friends, one of the ways that you can best serve this church is multiplying yourself. Train others to do what you can do. Get yourself out of a job, basically. That's how disciples are made. If you quarantine off your ministry and your role to only you knows how to do this, 
you're hindering and hurting this church. Multiplication happens by multiplying yourself so that others can carry on the work when you and I are gone. And lastly, number five, fulfill your ministry and leave the results to God. Titus appeared to finish the drill. He fulfilled his ministry. Paul left him on the island of Crete, and Titus could not leave until he got orders to go elsewhere. We're not told what happens in the scriptures to these churches on the island of Crete. We're not told if there was a lot of fruit from his labors or even Artemis' labors. We're told that Apollos and Zenos probably are the ones who brought this letter to Titus because Paul says, hey, take care of them. They got to get back home, pay for their rent, their food, their travel expenses, speed them on their way. See that they lack nothing. Friends, whatever God calls us to do, wherever God calls us to live, whatever sufferings, setback, or satanic opposition we face, none of it is in vain if our hearts stay fixed on Jesus. Friends, I don't know what transition you're in now. I don't know what transitions God may bring. I don't even know what transitions God may bring into this church in the coming year. But I have two questions to ask you as we close. What is to be our guide in making decisions? How do we discern God's will in our life of what we should be doing? What is our confidence as we walk forward into the unknown? Joshua 1, verses 8 and 9. The book of the law, the scriptures, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Friends, this letter began with a reminder of God's grace to us in Christ. Look at Titus 1 verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And notice how the letter ends with a reminder of God's grace to us in Christ. Titus 3 verse 15 Grace be with you all. If you are a Christian here this morning, God has treated you immeasurably better than your sins deserve. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter that was penned many, many years ago to a man who had a hard task in front of him. And from all appearances, Lord, he fulfilled that ministry. He waited on his marching orders, he stayed until they were finished, and he had the faith to leave, to believe you still had wonderful plans for his life. Lord, also we see the transition of Artemis. Well, we see that a man who wasn't widely known by others 
being used of you to replace Titus. Lord, I don't know what our futures hold. I don't know what even tomorrow holds. Lord, I don't even know what what success you may bring in the life of this church. But I pray, Father, that our eyes would be stuck on Jesus, that we would get low, that we would not seek to be served as first-class passengers, but to serve and make others feel first-class. Lord, I do pray that you give us courage and wisdom. Lord, cause our church to see it as normal and natural to seek wise counsel before making big life decisions. And Father, in all things, whether we are well-known or unknown, or whether you show us the fruit on this side of heaven, or we have to wait, not unto us, not unto us, but to you be the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.